the hotbed of all the British North American colonies is Upper Canada, the one that experiences politics as life on a razor's edge is Upper Canada. Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Roots of Canadian Conservatism. Inhabitants of Canada, after 30 years of peace and prosperity, the United States have been driven to arms. The injuries and aggressions, the insults and indignities of Great Britain have once more left them no alternative but manly resistance or unconditional submission. The army under my command has invaded your country. Inhabitants of Canada, arise in a body, exert your energies, cooperate cordially with the king's regular forces to repel the invader. And do not give cause to your children when groaning under the oppression of a foreign master to reproach you with having so easily parted with the richest inheritance of this earth. A participation in the name, character and freedom of Britons. Come all you bold Canadians, I'd have you lend an ear Concerning a fine ditty that would make your courage cheer Concerning an engagement that we had at Sandwich Town The courage of those Yankee boys so lately we put down There was a bold commander, brave General Brock by name Took shipping at Niagara and down to York he came He said, my gallant heroes, if you'll come along with me We'll fight those proud Yankees in the west of Canada. The War of 1812 was a turning point for Upper Canada. It slowed the growing Americanization of the province and reaffirmed the imperial tie to Great Britain. It also strengthened the conservative vision of Upper Canada as a hierarchical British type of society governed by those who considered themselves to be its natural leaders. Largely as a result of the reinforcing effect of American hostility, this worldview was to hold the upper hand in the province for the next generation. It was finally defeated in the years after 1837 by the combined strength of popular opposition and its own internal contradictions, but in the process, it gave the political culture of Ontario and of Canada a conservative bent that it has never entirely lost. Tonight, in part two of The Roots of Canadian Conservatism, we turn to the War of 1812 and its aftermath, the period between 1815 and 1837, when conservatism made its doomed but still influential bid to shape the type of society Canada would eventually become. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. On the 12th of July, 1812, 2,000 American troops under the command of General William Hull crossed the Detroit River and occupied the territory of Upper Canada. Hull believed he came as a liberator and the next day showed his confidence by addressing a proclamation to the citizens of the occupied region. Inhabitants of Canada, after 30 years of peace and prosperity, the United States have been driven to arms. 
The injuries and aggressions, the insults and indignities of Great Britain have once more left them no alternative but manly resistance or unconditional submission. The army under my command has invaded your country and the standard of union now waves over the territory of Canada. To the peaceable, unoffending inhabitants, it brings neither danger nor difficulty. I come to find enemies, not to make them. I come to protect, not to injure you. Separated by an immense ocean and an extensive wilderness from Great Britain, you have no participation in her councils, no interest in her conduct. You have felt her tyranny, you have seen her injustices. The United States offers you peace, liberty, and security. If you tender your services voluntarily, they will be accepted readily. Your choice lies between these and war, slavery, and destruction. Hull's proclamation fell on fertile ground. The population of Upper Canada was by this time predominantly composed of non-loyalist American settlers, people who had come north for land in the years after 1792. They did not have the same attachment to the cause of Great Britain as the earlier loyalists, and they showed little enthusiasm for war with the United States. The commander of the British forces, General Isaac Brock, shot back an equally bombastic counter-proclamation, but in private correspondence with a fellow officer, he revealed a much more pessimistic assessment of the prospects for a successful defense of the province. My dear friend, my situation is most critical, not from anything the enemy can do, but from the disposition of the people. The population, believe me, is essentially bad. A full belief possesses them all that this province must inevitably succumb. This prepossession is fatal to every exertion. Legislators, magistrates, militia officers, all have imbibed the idea and are so sluggish and indifferent in their respective offices that the artful and active scoundrel is allowed to parade the country without interruption and commit all imaginable mischief. What a change an additional regiment would make in this part of the province. Most of the people have lost all confidence. I, however, speak loud and look big. The militia, declared Brock, were in a perfect state of insubordination, refusing to march when legally commanded. Some escaped into the countryside to avoid service. Others showed an open preference for the cause of the United States. Michael Smith, an American visitor to Upper Canada during the period, recorded these observations. Twelve days after the Battle of Queenston, Colonel Graham on Young Street ordered his battalion to assemble that a number might be drafted to go to Fort George. Forty of them did not come, but went out to Whitchurch Township, which was nearly a wilderness, and joined 30 more fugitives that were already there. By the 1st of December, the number of fugitives increased to 300. On my way to Kingston, I saw about 50 of these people near Smith's Creek in the Newcastle district on the main road with fife and drum beating for recruits and huzzahing for President Madison. Some of these men remained in the woods all winter, and Indians went out in the spring of 1813 and drove them into their caves where they were taken. None of the militia in the Newcastle district bore arms except 12 at Presque Isle Harbor. 
they were universally in favor of the United States. The indifference of the militia was not Brock's only problem. He also faced opposition in the assembly to his wish for a partial suspension of civil rights and a partial declaration of martial law. This was consistent with the assembly's long-standing opposition to arbitrary executive power and continued till war's end in 1815. Eventually, two of the assemblymen, Joseph Wilcox and Abraham Markle, along with ex-assemblyman Benaja Mallory, would go over to the Americans. The extent of open collaboration with the American invaders eventually led the acting Attorney General, John Beverly Robinson, to institute mass treason trials. These trials, later known as the Bloody Assize, were held at Ancaster in 1814. And on July 20th of that year, eight men were hanged for treason at Burlington Heights. It is probably stretching things to call the War of 1812 a civil war, but clearly there were internal forces working in favor of the Americans, forces ranging from apathy at one extreme to open preference for the American form of government at the other. The fact that the province survived probably owed most to the superior military ability of the combined British and Indian force which defended it. By immediately taking the offensive and capturing the American army at Detroit in the summer of 1812, Isaac Brock reversed the mood of discouragement which prevailed at the beginning of the war. And his hero's death during the victory at Queenston in October further inspired the spirit of resistance. The militia, when they could be gotten out at all, played a decidedly secondary role. Patriotic legend, however, soon reversed the roles of the militia and the regular British military forces. This, for example, was the version of events given out by John Strawn, then recently established as the rector of the provincial capital at York. It will be told by the future historian that the province of Upper Canada, without the assistance of men or arms except a handful of regular troops, repelled its invaders, slew or took them all prisoners, and captured from its enemies the greater part of the arms by which it was defended. And never surely was greater activity shown in any country than our militia have exhibited, never greater valour, cooler resolution, and more approved conduct. They have emulated the choicest veterans, and they have twice saved the country. This story soon became a staple Upper Canadian myth, and its later influence owed a great deal to the stature of John Strawn himself. This stature had been very much enhanced by the war, particularly by his role during the occupation of York by American forces in April of 1813. The British had retreated at the approach of the superior American force, and in their absence, Strawn became, in the words of historian Charles Humphreys, York's guardian angel. He supervised the negotiations for the surrender of the town, and when the Americans delayed the signing of the negotiated Articles of Surrender, he set off in search of the American commander, General Henry Dearborn. He caught up with him as he was coming ashore from his ship. General Dearborn, I am John Strawn, sir, the rector of York. 
And I have the honour to present you with the articles of capitulation for your signature. Uh, not now, Mr... Um, not now. Can you not see I have more important business to attend to? General Dearborn, I really must insist on your immediate attention. Our captured militia have been left without food. The wounded are unattended, and looting has taken place in our House of Assembly and elsewhere in the town. This is conduct unbecoming yourself and your army, sir, and can no longer be justified by your craven refusal to honour the articles of surrender which we have already negotiated. Major King, will you please have this man removed before I am forced to endure more of his abuse? The articles shall be signed when it pleases me to do so, and not when this upstart parson commands. I will not be removed, General Dearborn, until you have signed the articles. I've had the honour of transacting business with greater men than you, sir, without meeting with any indignity. Your incivility ill becomes a man of your station, sir. But regardless of it, I will not relent until the articles are signed. Dearborn did sign the terms of surrender later that day. But more importantly, John Strawn had made himself an embodiment of his society's fighting spirit. The same was true of other important Tory leaders, like John Beverly Robinson, who had fought with Brock at Queenston. The value of their leadership and their cause was now written in blood on the soil of Upper Canada itself. So now we are all home again, each man is safe and sound. May the memory of this conquest all through the province sound. Success unto our volunteers who did their rights maintain. And to our bold commander, brave General Brock by name. The War of 1812 turned Upper Canadian Conservatism into a powerful and dynamic force. And this, according to historian Sid Wise, made Upper Canada unique among all the provinces of British North America. In Upper Canada, alone among all the provinces, you have loyalty oaths. You have mass confiscation of property of people who are considered to be disloyal. Uh, you have actual hangings for treason. When a society decides that it knows itself well enough to determine that some of its members ought to be killed because they have betrayed it, that is a society which is, is making an extremely significant kind of statement. So you have a hardening and, if you like, a radicalizing of conservatism. So the conservatism which is generated in Upper Canada between the War of 1812 and the Rebellion, which itself is a consequence of the kind of radical conservatism which is generated in the province, is far more explicit and far more important in determining the nature of the political system than in any other society of British North America. That's what makes Ontario, throughout the 19th, and I would argue into the 20th century, the distinctive province it is. Sid Wise's argument here depends on the fact that the War of 1812 was fought mainly on the territory of Upper Canada. New Brunswick, for example, was equally a loyalist province, and its elite certainly shared the intention of the Upper Canadian leaders to establish a government of gentlemen, but New Brunswick was largely untouched by the war, its survival never in question. Thus, according to Wise, its conservatism never developed the cogency or the dynamism that were evident in Upper Canada after the war. 
This dynamism had two main components, a sense of danger from the imposing and surrounding presence of the United States, and at the same time, a sense of providential deliverance as a result of the province's preservation during the war. Together, these produced a political spirit that was both urgent and expansive, a combination which can be heard in a letter written by John Beverly Robinson in 1816. To my lord, the Earl of Bathurst. Upper Canada was happily preserved from subjection in the late war by the powerful assistance generously afforded her by the mother country, and indeed miraculously saved in the beginning of that war before such assistance could reach her. How unhappy for its inhabitants to now look forward to a constant struggle for independence against a powerful and unprincipled neighbor, who will obviously seize upon the moment when Great Britain may be most embarrassed and most occupied in other quarters to attempt to rob her of her colonies. I humbly submit to your lordship that in these circumstances, the first defense of Upper Canada is to be sought for in its own internal increase in wealth and population, and that everything which aids the growth of prosperity of this infant colony is, in its peculiar situation, of most important consequence to its security. Robinson's intuition that security and prosperity were two sides of the same coin was to blossom in the 1820s into an ambitious program of state-supported public works. This was the beginning, according to Sid Wise, of the central role played by the state in the economic development of Ontario. The fact is that almost from the beginning there is a junction between state-guided conservatism and development. The idea of harnessing the province and the province's credit to dynamic economic forces in the province is there almost from the beginning. And so you use the instrumentality of the state for the Welland Canal. You, you, you nationalize it, although you don't call it that. Uh, you use state credit for all sorts of canal building and road building projects. This is the origins, of course, of ugly Ontario of Empire Ontario, of exploitative Ontario. And this is a continuity which is not lost at all, but in fact has always been thought as at the heart of government in Ontario and Ontario's attitude towards itself in Confederation. Between the 1820s and the 1840s, the government of Upper Canada poured vast sums of money into the Welland Canal and other public works. And in the process, they accumulated a debt that would make a modern liberal blush. They were persuaded to it, argues historian Robert Fraser, not by any rational economic calculus, but by their sense of the bounty which Providence had conferred on them. Fraser called his doctoral thesis on this period like Eden in her summer dress, a phrase borrowed from John Macaulay of Kingston. People who come before them, there's a psychological limit they see Upper Canada as a poor province with meager financial resources. The first provincial consideration of an economic strategy for development occurs in 1821, the Committee on Internal Resources, chaired by Robert Nicoll. Now, they recognize the need for canals primarily as the, as the major means of ensuring a prosperous agricultural society. But they're hobbled by that sense of how can we possibly do it? Who can afford it? The province was cash poor. They had to pay their war pensioners and the first debentures for war pensions. 
but that breaks the psychological barrier. How do you get money? Well, you simply mortgage the future. If you're sure that your future is prosperous, then you have no hesitation, and they don't. There is a staggering debt by the time of union. In fact, debt is one of the things that drives Upper Canada into the union. It's one of the things that Sydenham uses as his whip to get Upper Canada to come together with Lower Canada is the handling of the debt and getting on with public improvement. Now, this is the legacy of, of Toryism. This is the legacy of Robinson, and the first major sums all concern public improvement. And again, the reason for them is, well, I suppose it's subsumed in Macaulay's phrase. Here's a man down at Kingston, of all places, where you can stub your toe on the Laurentian shield, talking about Upper Canada being like Eden in a summer dress. There you have it. Why are they able to push for development in such a way? It's a sure thing, foregone conclusion. So I think that's their understanding of it. You simply can't understand their fervor unless you understand providentialism. The term providentialism refers to the belief that Upper Canada was a society peculiarly blessed by God. It arose from a rather partisan reading of the Bible and was typical of a period in which history was still seen in terms of the basic biblical pattern of fall and redemption. Historian William Westfall. In the early 19th century, religion deeply colored the social, political, and indeed economic thought of Upper Canada. It's perhaps difficult for us, living within the assumptions of our own age, to understand the degree to which religious thought provided really the very framework for understanding reality. I think one of the problems we have is that even if we acknowledge the importance of religion, we still tend to accept a late Victorian conception of reality which tends to divide reality into two worlds. That is, there is a religious sphere and a secular sphere. And from this division, we tend to ask such questions as how did religion influence society? Well, in the early 19th century, people weren't as willing to make, to set up those sorts of categories. Uh, for them, the divine plan and human history were closely interwoven. And so to, to separate, to try to separate these things and talk about categories like political thought, economic thought, social thought, and religious thought would go against the way this society and culture tended to integrate ideas. Religion is the only firm and lasting foundation upon which the tranquility and security of a people can be strengthened and established. From a sermon by John Strawn. The experience of all nations teaches us that neither the unassisted dictates of reason, nor the active principle of public spirit, nor the punishment of the civil magistrate, are effectual checks upon men's appetites and passions. If we leave out a belief of a God and a providence, or cease to cultivate these affections of the heart which that belief tends naturally to produce. The fear of God must always be considered as the surest foundation of freedom. It forms and fixes every virtue of the heart, gives life and motion to every good principle of the mind, directs the hopes and fears of men to their proper objects, and supplies the unavoidable defects of human laws. For John Strawn, 
religion provided the justification for an existing social order. And it was in these terms that he and other members of the Anglican elite read the biblical story of fall and redemption. William Westfall. Nature they saw in terms of order. They saw God himself in terms of a rational intelligence that had created the world as a sort of example for what man should become. And they saw redemption in terms of man returning to a state of order that he had lost at the fall. Now, once one sees God and nature in terms of order and restraint, then the question of politics fits very nicely into this schema, because political institutions are also institutions of restraint. Consequently, people like Strawn and Cartwright and Robinson would argue that political institutions and political restraint, because they restrained man's fallen nature, served a positive religious good. Indeed, they, they would never make a distinction between politics and religion. They would say, and Strawn said this many times, that, that someone who is loose in religion will also be loose in politics. So there was a strongly ethical quality to this religion. And of course, the central institution that held all these ideas together was the idea of an established church. Because there was the real meeting ground between politics and religion. The state would help the church in order that the, so that the church could provide the religious instruction to the people. But of course, that religious instruction would work to the benefit of the state because it would make people not only good Christians, but good members of society. So for Strawn and these other people, a, uh, the, the, the church establishment, which was set down so clearly in the Constitutional Act of 1791, uh, and really had been, was followed for the next you know, 40 or 50 years, um, was absolutely central to their vision, their conservative vision of Upper Canada. From Chief Justice John Beverly Robinson's address to the grand jury of the Western District in 1836. Members of the jury, a love of order is not only essential to the tranquility, but to the very being of any state. It becomes the foundation of mutual faith, confidence, and security. When we behold an indifference to the observance of the laws, a want of reverence to magistrates and superiors, a disrespect to stations, offices, ranks, and orders of persons, a contempt for the experience of the wise, and an absolute independence in public and private conduct, affected and encouraged, we may consider this general forwardness, self-sufficiency, presumption, and licentiousness as symptoms fatal to the true liberty of that country. In such cases, every little disappointment, every imaginary grievance, every wanton desire of change produces a ferment and threatens the public peace. Everyone carves out his own method of redress and prosecutes his designs by the dictates of his own corrupt will. To prevent these evils, a love of order becomes necessary, and by it we are induced to conform to the laws and to promote the welfare of the community. Intrinsic to this sense of order was the idea that the interest of society as a whole was superior to the interests of its individual members. This social interest 
was embodied in a society's immemorial traditions. Both tradition and the fact that individuals were believed to be inherently unequal decreed that hierarchy was the natural order of things. The happiness of society, therefore, depended on a proper hierarchy of social stations linked together by their mutual obligations. Thus did John Strawn instruct his parishioners. Man, solitary and independent of his fellow creatures, must be a wretched being. His wants and the social principles of his nature attach him to his species. The various relations of individuals and societies require a mutual exchange of good offices. The happiness of one is subservient to that of his neighbor. Private interest is inseparably connected with the interest of the community, and the union and happiness of the whole acquire a degree of strength and security which the unnatural disjointed systems of solitude and selfishness could never attain. Hence it would appear that they who labor in the inferior departments of life are not on that account the slaves of their superiors. The lowest order enjoys its peculiar comforts and privileges and contributes equally with the highest to the support and dignity of society. The religion of men like John Strawn and John Beverly Robinson was predominantly rational. They believed that the truth of religion could be intellectually deduced from the order that was evident in both nature and traditional society. But there was another competing religious worldview in Upper Canada, and it was one that the Anglicans found most disconcerting, revivalism. And revivalism, of which Methodism was the foremost expression, saw the world very differently. William Westfall. For these revivalists, religion begins with emotion, begins with this highly emotional experience of God. Well, that is just the opposite of the sort of rational piety which the Anglicans and indeed the Presbyterians are trying to inculcate during this period. And of course, the other quality of this emotional religion is that it seems to be something as well which breaks down social structures, which breaks down the sense of hierarchy. Now that's not to say that all these Methodists were Democrats or believed in the equality of man. Uh, I don't think one should push their arguments in that direction. But in seeing man as surrounded by the hard shell of the world and that this hard shell must be broken to unleash the sort of kernel of redemption that is within man's soul, what this led to, of course, was the association uh, in many people's minds that the institutions of society were also a part of the fallen world. So there was this tendency to argue that redemption meant somehow coming out of the world, abandoning society. Well, what was one abandoning? One was, in fact, abandoning what these conservative thinkers regarded as the very institutions which were going to help society bring about the proper type of religious order. So in the early 19th century, there were two completely different sets of religious metaphors that were used to interpret that biblical story. The one emphasizing restraint, order, rationality, that saw nature as providing evidence of design, 
and the rational character of God in the world. The second set of metaphors, arguing that religion was in essence an intense personal experience, and that that experience meant stepping out of one's traditional social, political, if you like, cultural framework. Now, of course, no one can really ever step out of that, at least completely, but it was a powerful argument for, if not social change, at least in the eyes of the first sets of metaphors, a tremendous argument for social instability. antagonism between Anglican and Revivalist was an expression of the deep division which cut across Upper Canada in the years after the war. At issue, frequently, was the very nature of the society. Historian Jane Arrington. In 1815, at the end of the war, I think you've got a society which is becoming self-conscious. You have no longer three primarily three individual communities of Kingston, York, and Niagara, who prior to the war had very little contact. Uh, was just much too difficult to travel. After the war, I think that is evolving into a colonial sense. But it's a colonial sense that takes its references of what it is and what makes up being an upper Canadian, in part from their knowledge of Great Britain and the United States. So you define yourself as an upper Canadian in terms of, I think, what you know about what's happening in the States in Great Britain. And it's illustrated in a, what I think is a really interesting way, which are the terms of the debate which are used in the 1820s as to what an alien is or who an alien is. A very heated political debate starts originally, I suppose, immediately after the war when they try to close the borders to American settlers. Peaks really, though, in 1821 when there's a controversy over whether Barnabas Bidwell, who is a, a formerly a Republican member from Massachusetts, who would then become a school teacher in Ernesttown, was then ran for the local assembly, was elected, and the election was contested. It was contested on the basis that he was an alien and therefore had no right to be in the legislature. I am an old man, but I have not forgotten the scenes of my youth. An address to the freeholders of Lennox and Addington from the Kingston Chronicle, February 1st, 1822. The house wherein I was born, the garden where I played, and the fields where my hands first learned to labor. Well can I remember how I was driven from them and from the spot where my father fell, fighting for his king against rebels. By whom was I robbed of my patrimony? Even by such as Barnabas Bidwell, who now claims equal privileges with the best of us. He now comes forward after a lapse of a few years to enjoy one of your highest prerogatives, to amend and make your laws, to sit cheek by jowl with your honorable men. What are you about, ye sons of loyalists? Will ye suffer these things? Can an American be a loyal upper Canadian? Is, is almost the crux of the issue. The group who become the Tory elite, 
what some historians will refer to as the family compact, will tend to say, no, an American cannot. Or if he can, it's only after a great long period of residency and then formally declaring oath of allegiance. And there was almost an attempt to disenfranchise even those who'd been in Upper Canada since before the War of 1812, but who had been in the United States after 1784. The growing forces of reform in the states, are, and in Upper Canada rather, are saying that that can't be the case. That even those who had only come to Upper Canada between 1784 and 1812, but who had fought for the colony, who had some who had lost members of their family to the colony, could not now be considered to be not British. One could not disenfranchise what was in fact probably two-thirds of the colony. Now, you couldn't do it for straight political reasons and for legal reasons. It was too much of a problem. Their major concern, though, however, was that was unjust, that these people had proven by their actions that they were loyal. The alien question was batted back and forth between the Assembly, the Legislative Council, and the Colonial Secretary for the next seven years. It was finally settled by London over the heads of the Lieutenant Governor and his Tory allies. The settlement recognized the political rights of the Americans who had been in the province before 1820 and permitted more recent immigrants to become naturalized after seven years. Another typical debate concerned the law of primogeniture, which stipulated that property must pass to the eldest son in cases where there was no will. Reformers argued that equal division of property would be more just, and bills to this effect were regularly passed by the Assembly and just as regularly rejected by the appointed council. Christopher Hagerman, a Kingston Tory, argued that the bill would be a death blow to aristocracy, which he considered essential to the happiness and good government of any people. If the present bill is passed, you will be departing from everything venerable, noble, and honorable. Democracy, like a serpent, is twisting around us by slow degrees. If we are to have the British Constitution and not its mere shadow, it must be crushed. Democracy, to Tories like Christopher Hagerman, stood for a society ruled by self-interest. They believed it would destroy the independence of public officials and make government the captive of an ignorant and unstable public opinion. In its stead, they proposed a government of gentlemen, by which, ideally, they meant those whose wealth or education would make them immune to political pressure and free them to act solely in the common good. Their defense of this principle was firmly based on the province's constitution, which had been established by an act of the British Parliament in 1791. This constitution was expressly designed by the British government to limit the power of the popularly elected assembly, which they believed had been the downfall of British government in the American colonies. The first governor of Upper Canada, John Graves Simcoe, had referred to it as the image and transcript of the British Constitution. It provided for an established church, life appointments to the Legislative Council, and even for the creation of hereditary titles, though this was never actually done. Because of the strength this constitution gave to the governor and the appointed upper house, the Legislative Council, it became the stronghold of the Tories. And when popular opposition to their government began to mount in the 1820s and 1830s, they fell back on it as their last line of defense. Robert Fraser.
everything hinges upon the Constitution for maintaining a conservative society, for having a conservative society in Upper Canada. And the reason is that you don't have conservatism innate to the social fabric of Upper Canada. You don't have an aristocracy. You don't have a gentry. You don't have a great middling class, and you don't have a tenantry. What that realization is is simply this isn't England, and it never will be. When they realize that, I think of anything, their tendency is to, is to defend that constitution with even greater ferocity. In the end, all that they can rely on is the maintenance of non-democratic and constitutional forms of government. Hence, you have to have an appointive legislative council. You have to have an appointive executive council, and you have to maintain the prerogatives of the crown because these are the only inst things left, the only institutions which can limit democracy and the growth of democracy in British North America, and specifically in Upper Canada. To be independent, you have to have land and wealth. You have to be economically independent and socially independent, and those things make you politically independent. You're not beholden to anyone. But that rests upon great estates, and there are no great estates in Upper Canada. For the most part, these people end up relying on government to give them an independence of income, which allows them to pursue the sorts of policies that they want. They don't have an independence otherwise. John Macaulay, when he's thinking in the 1830s of getting out of business, what he wants are government posts, which will give him, say, 800 pounds a year. That's the anomaly of their situation. John Macaulay to John Beverly Robinson. The place in question peculiarly comports with my situation and views. With that and the post office, I can live in a snug way, discharge my present social duties, and make myself on all occasions useful in supporting good government and combating the unceasing efforts of our Democrats to injure the tone of public feeling. They think of themselves in terms of being gentry, and yet it's anachronistic because they're not gentry in terms of the, the social and economic reality of the English gentry. And that's what makes their situation so paradoxical. And I think it, it's that situation which they come to realize, which says something about the impossibility of conservatism. Conservatism rests on the defense of a long-established order. And as such, it is peculiar to the place where it develops. Thus it was with British conservatism. It grew empirically out of the soil of England, not as a program for a social order, but as a description of one. In North America, it necessarily became something else. William Westfall. When you looked at the wilderness of Upper Canada, it was very hard to see that wilderness as if it were God's handiwork. I mean, it was not a, the sort of English countryside that was very nicely divided up into into squares and rectangles and so on and so forth. Uh, it was a very brutal, hostile environment. When you looked at the political structure of Upper Canada, um, that political structure, at least what had been set out in theoretical terms in 1791, had not clearly uh, been established by the 1820s, 1830s. Indeed, it was never fully established. So, there, so what men like Strawn and Cartwright and Robinson and the whole 
group of conservative leaders found themselves doing was translating ideas which in their English contexts were broad rationales or broad descriptions of a society that had evolved over time, so much so that you could argue that the political system had become a part of nature, they had to make these arguments in an upper Canada in which this environment did not exist. And so they, you, you get a sort of prophetic quality to their conservatism. They had to argue not from what is, but from what ought to be. So you find them continually talking about the benefits that will arise from something which has not yet happened. Now, it's a very hard position for a real conservative to do that, because theoretically a conservative is defending something that exists. Well, Strawn, uh, in a letter that he wrote to the Bishop of Quebec, said it in a very epigrammatic form. He said, our argument should not be what we are, but what we will become if left unmolested. So there was this prophetic, this sort of future quality to Strawn's argument. This prophetic, and one might also say utopian conservatism, was finally forced to give way before the modernizing forces which overtook Canada from the 1840s on. John Beverly Robinson, writing in the 1840s, expressed his contempt for this new way of life. How completely all scruples seem to have vanished in the conduct of public affairs these days. It was truly said by Sir Francis Head that the principle of a monarchy is honor. The principle of democracy is mere unmitigated selfishness. Anything may be done that will serve the purpose of the day. Claims and merit go for nothing. In the strife of parties, the difficulties of maintaining one's position seem to leave room but for one train of thought in mind. All considerations of what is just and becoming seem to be disregarded. Or rather, it seems to be felt that there is no chance of keeping one's head above water with such dead weights about the neck. Robinson was never reconciled to the new order. Indeed, he was convinced it could never last. As an example, Robert Fraser has drawn to my attention this remarkable letter which he wrote to John Strawn in 1851. We must be prepared to make the most of our means of resistance and must comfort ourselves with the conviction that in God's good providence things will in time arrive at a sound state. We shall have some years of coarse, vulgar democracy, enough to worry us in our time, but our sons, or at least our grandsons, will see the beginnings of a reconstruction of the social edifice more worthy of the human race. I take it to be inevitable that in the progress of time the Church of England will regain an undisputed ascendance, and when men have suffered enough from their mistake, they will see the fallacy of the democratic system. To end the story here would be to suggest that by 1840, conservatism was a spent force. But although Robinson's rhetoric might lead us to this conclusion, Sid Wise argues that this was not the case. It is both, I think, a long-established view and a traditional view, and I would argue a thoroughly unhistorical view, because it assumes, of course, that that first half-century of experience 
has no continuity, that something, in fact, catastrophic occurred uh, with the rebellion, which was an even more traditional view, or modified with responsible government. And therefore, one can cite the regretful or elegiac tones of a Robinson or a Strawn or a Macaulay. Although it's interesting that Strawn and Robinson Macaulay continue to function effectively in the society which succeeded their own. I think a, a far more rational and, if I may say so, historically sophisticated way of looking at this is to say that, of course, uh, the experience of the first two generations of people who lived in the province didn't simply go down the historical memory tube in the 1840s. And in fact, if one begins with the assumption that there must have been continuities and starts looking for them, they're there for all of us to see. L let me cite one e example, which is, is really quite enthralling. And that's the example of Oliver Mowat, uh, the liberal premier of Ontario for an exceedingly long time, from 1871 until well into the 1890s, who dies, I believe, in 1905, in this century, as Ontario's lieutenant governor. Now, if one examines both Mowat's thought and his actions, they are different in no significant particular from the thought and actions of those generations of conservatives who had preceded them in Upper Canada. There is the same emphasis on the importance of the Ontario state. There is the same emphasis on the moral role of the state to be exercised through a centralized school system. There is a total acceptance of the loyalist origins of the province, though Moat himself is not a loyalist. And in fact, the core ideology is conservative. In the 1880s and 1890s, the Liberal Party was faced with the whole reciprocity versus commercial union issue with the United States. Moat's response to that in a, in a series of really quite extraordinary speeches is the response of old Ontario. If John Beverly Robinson had been alive to listen to Oliver Moat speaking in Niagara-on-the-Lake in 1889 on this issue, he would have disagreed with not one element in that speech, not one. There was no rejection of the past, whatever. If Wise is right about this, and the structure of political debate in Ontario in the 1890s was virtually the same as in the 1830s, then what was John Beverly Robinson so unhappy about? I think the answer lies in the two very different meanings that can be given to the term conservatism. We have to distinguish between the utopian dreams of the early Tories and their actual political practice. Robinson's hopes had been dashed, his conservative utopia could not survive the transition to a more recognizably modern social order in the 1840s. But if we look at what Robinson and his fellow Tories actually did politically, rather than at their self-image as gentlemen, then I think we can see that Wise is right. Much of their political practice was conserved, and that is the subject for our final program next week.
What glorious things might have been effected in North America? The brightest imagination is unable to picture the scenes of peace and happiness which it would have exhibited. And these provinces, instead of being exposed to traitorous conspiracies within and without, would have presented a Christian society built up in righteousness. On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to the second programme in our series on the roots of Canadian conservatism. The series is written and narrated by David Cayley. Production assistant, Alison Moss. Technical production, Lorne Tulk. Producer, Damiano Pietropaolo. The music was arranged and performed by Anne Lederman and Ian Bell, who are, collectively, Muddy York. Readings were by Colin Fox and Paul Soles. Our special thanks to Dr. Robert Fraser of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, from whose original research many of the quotations in tonight's programme were drawn. Printed transcripts of these programmes will be available for $5. You can get your copy by sending your request to Roots of Conservatism, care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Please don't forget to make your check or money order payable to CBC Enterprises. Please don't send cash through the mail. And do be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. And a reading list on the subject of Canadian conservatism is available for free from Ideas at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. The Roots of Canadian Conservatism continues next week at the same time. And tomorrow night on Ideas, join me for the second program in a series which looks at 25 years of Fidel Castro's Cuba. Inside Cuba, 25 years with Fidel. Tomorrow night on Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>